Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. I can think of no better guest to launch our Edinburgh series than Eric Melvin, a local respected Scottish historian who presents and gives walking tours through Edinburgh. He's written a walk through Edinburgh's new town, as well as a walk down Edinburgh's Royal Mile. His passion is contagious. You'll see. Hello, good morning, or a good afternoon. It's a very wet and stormy afternoon here. Obviously, it's not nearly as cold as the weather you've been having. Oh, <laughs> no, it's been about six. I really want to start with the glaciers, because I feel like the glaciers have a lot to do with... Not with the characteristics of Scots, I hope, icy cold. Edinburgh's been my home for virtually all of my life, apart from one year after university when I stayed to London. It's got many of the attributes of an international city, uh, although there's only just over 500,000 people. And compared to Tokyo, where our family live with 35 million people, it's just a village, but it's got so many of the attributes of an international city. It's got a wonderful history with a royal palace, a royal castle, uh, and a royal mile, a street linking the castle with the palace, which has got more history than any other street in the United Kingdom. It's also got the finest example of 18th century town planning, again, anywhere in the United Kingdom. Um, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's the largest World Heritage Site in, again, the United Kingdom. For centuries, it's been a centre of learning. We've got four universities and many famous schools. And of course, it's a cultural centre. We've got concert halls, theatres, cinemas. It's now a very popular film location. If you think of Fast and Furious and the Avengers, we've now got a, a film studio. And since 1947, we've got the largest international cultural festival in the world, the Edinburgh International Festival. Mm. But also a sporting centre with the international rugby ground at Murrayfield. We've got two Premier Division football clubs based in Edinburgh. We've got swimming pools, leisure centres, and over 10 public and private golf courses uh, for people to enjoy. It's also a recreation centre with the world-famous Royal Botanic Gardens, the first in the United Kingdom. We've got parks, we've got hills, uh, and there can't be many cities that can boast an ancient extinct volcano right in the centre of the city. Uh, and of course... Arthur's Seat. Arthur's Seat. Well done, Kerry. Um, <laughs> we're also home to Scotland's devolved pa parliament. Having been a royal capital for centuries. Uh, in 1999, following a referendum, Scotland got a devolved parliament, and that's based again here in the city. May I ask you a couple of other things that I didn't hear mentioned there that I'm wondering if you have any insight on? Number one, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is kind of the training ground, if you will, maybe yeah. For the for the larger festival for, yeah. for up and coming artists where they kind of take over the whole city, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. 
And then the other one that came to my mind was Harry Potter. Is there any association there? Well, let's start with the fringe. Um, when the festival started, it was a very bold decision to create an international festival because the world is emerging from a terrible war with terrible destruction, particularly in Europe. Uh, so it was a very bold decision. Uh, and it was very much to the credit of Edinburgh that the Lord Provost of the time said, yes, we'll host the festival. Uh, and one of the most moving events in the festival was the, the famous Austrian conductor who had lost his orchestra uh, with the Nazi occupation of his country. They were reunited for the first time at the festival. And the fact that people from Germany were invited to the festival made a huge statement. At first, the festival was was very sort of high class in terms of performances, you know, with ballet, concerts, theatre. And a group of people felt that we really have to broaden the festival out and make it more attractive to people who are not high class cultural folk. And so the Fringe Festival grew from that. And it's now the largest form of popular entertainment anywhere in the world. And you're quite right. For many famous performers, particularly comedians, it's a launch pad. You get a lot of theatre companies coming from universities. And all of the stars of Monty Python, if you can remember Monty Python, you came with the Cambridge Footlights Review and we used to go and see them. Or somebody like Rowan Atkinson, we went to see him when he first performed as a stand-up comedian uh, at the Fringe. It's also a very much a global stage, and you've got artists from all over the world coming to perform on the Fringe. A lot of them don't make any money. It's just the opportunity to perform. Um, and it brings you know, a wonderful, lively atmosphere, um, because during the festival in August, they can book a slot to perform in the Royal Mile. So you'll have a lot of music, dancing, singing, all sorts of things going on. And it's just a wonderful time to be here in the city. So the Fringe grew and it now complements the official festival. It's not in any way in competition with the festival. They can coexist together very, very happily. We do. Yes. Different periods on the client journey. And just for the listeners, so they fully understand how unique the Fringe Festival is, and then we'll move on. I believe you can rent a venue all over the city and and perform there. It's kind of like a an informal impromptu. So essentially anywhere you go in Edinburgh, you can find a performance. Is that about accurate? That's, that's right. You'll see, you know, conventional little theaters, you'll see church halls, you'll see social clubs. You'll even see performances on the street and on the beach. There are open-air performances as well. And, and as long as they comply with health and safety regulations, which obviously is important, uh, then they can go ahead. So they have to be officially vetted yeah. by staff from the Edinburgh Festival Fringe that they are appropriate. There are emergency evacuation procedures and things like that. But you can have venues all over the city and beyond the city. And you know people will go to an amazing place to just to see a show. I love this. And and just as you were describing, everything you were describing in the first few minutes is exactly why I chose Edinburgh, because it is so culturally rich and culturally dense historically. And so I think the Fringe Festival, the reason I went on a sidebar was because I think it's just one example of how 
open and bold and enterprising. And uh, of course, the festival's grown arms and legs as well as the fringe. You now have a science festival. You now have a film festival. uh, There's a politics festival as well. And the city's actually bursting at the seams with things to do. I'm what's called an Edinburgh Festival Voluntary Guide. So this is a group of about 40-odd retired people uh, who take visitors round the old town of Edinburgh morning and afternoon, every day of the festival. And we started in 1947 when the provost, Lord Provost, realised that there would be people coming from abroad, coming to Edinburgh. And so we asked some friends, would you show them round? So we've just gone from that. We show visitors round. We had over a thousand visitors last year that we showed round the old town and the new town. And doing a walk on the Royal Mile on a Sunday, the contrast with when I was a child is staggering. Because when I was a child, nothing happened. Uh. Shops didn't open, cafes didn't open, pubs certainly didn't open. You couldn't eat and drink outside. Uh, you were supposed to go to church, and that was it. <laughs> as alive on a Sunday now during the festival uh, as any other day of the week. And it's just a wonderful place to be at that time. But yeah. of course, we're a tourist destination all through the year. We're second only to London uh, in terms of visitors. So 4 million tourists annually will come to Edinburgh and they'll contribute $1.2 billion to the local economy. And it really is our biggest industry now. And let's share a little bit about why all of these swarms of people are coming. So we talk about the Royal Mile, but for anyone who hasn't been to Edinburgh, can you describe what the glacier created and what exactly the Royal Mile is and what it attaches to. Yes, Edinburgh is formed by, by great acts of nature. I mean, 350 million years ago, we were parked down beside present-day Australia on a land that was punctured by active volcanoes. So we've got the legacy of that with, as you say quite rightly, Arthur's seat. But then as recently as 15,000 years ago, the whole of Northern Europe and Scotland completely was covered with an enormous slow-moving mountain of ice, the glacier. Uh, And as that crept southwards, it swept away all the vegetation, soft rocks and boulders, all previous habitation just disappeared. And it was impossible to live here. And as the ice made its way towards what's now Edinburgh, it swept away everything apart from what we call the Castle Rock, because that is a relic of the volcano Arthur's Seat. It's a hard basaltic igneous rock and the ice could break it down. Wow. So it gouged the valley out to the south, which is now our Cowgate, it's called, and to the north, which is now our Princess Street Gardens. But the spoil that it collected going over the what's now the castle rock was deposited as a spine running for approximately a mile, just over a kilometer, down to the valley at the bottom. And that is the Royal Mile, linking the castle and with the palace. And as I say, it's got more history attached to it than any other street in the United Kingdom. And it was a broad main street called the Highgate, much wider than the present Royal Mile, and you would have Burgess's houses, Merchant's houses on the street front. And behind that, you would have land, you'd have workshops, you'd have market gardens, but over time, that gets built up. And by the 1700s, Edinburgh is still restricted by what was called its ancient boundary, its royalty, and it had nowhere to go apart from upwards. And visitors were astonished that your tenements, 12, 13, 14 stories high, defying gravity, as Edinburgh's population grows and grows. And so by 1760, about 60,000 people were crammed into this 
narrow medieval area. So they built upwards, and eventually it became intolerable, and they broke out and built the new town. But the Royal Mile originally had about 90 little closes and winds running to the north and south, steeply down from the Royal Mile. And that's where people lived for hundreds of years. And I just wanted to share your book here because that's what we're talking about. A Walk Down Edinburgh's Royal Mile is a great compendium of walks around what you what we refer to as Old Town. And then the New Town, there's another book that you have that we will link these below. The New Town, are these available on Amazon? Yep. Okay, perfect. So we're going to link those below in the show notes. But the new town, as you mentioned, is around started around the 1760s, right? Correct. Yes. The first house was was built in 1767, um, and within a generation, traditionally, Edinburgh society, rich and poor, all lived very close together, often sharing the same stair, the same markets, um, the same closes. Was that unusual in Europe for the rich and poor to live so close together? No, I don't think it was. Well, perhaps you would have poorer quarters on the fringes, perhaps. What made Edinburgh unusual was because it was a centre of royalty and a centre of government, the nobility had to be here to be close to the centre of power. Mm. So they would have their country estates, they would have their castles, but they would have their Edinburgh townhouses. So some of these were still saints still standing in Edinburgh today. So you'd have the richest, the most powerful in the land rubbing shoulders with the poorest people in the land living in Edinburgh. But the building of the new town and the spreading suburbs to the south saw within a generation anybody who had money escape the overcrowding and move to the wonderful houses to the north and to the south. And the contrast just physically with the historic old town and the wonderful Georgian architecture of the new town um, was quite marked. So 300 metres, you've got historic Edinburgh, you've got Georgian Edinburgh, uh, and it's also a social divide. You're not talking about a tale of two cities where people had been very homogeneously living close together, sharing the streets, the pubs, the markets. Now the wealthy are away out of the old town of Edinburgh and know very little about how awful living conditions became in the 19th century. Oh, I have a question about that then. Do you think that that locational separation had anything at all to do with this McCarthy-esque madness of the witch hunt? No, no, that, that, that predates the new town. I think the last witch was executed in Scotland around about 1720. Okay. Uh, and this was a poor woman in Dornach whose daughter had been born with deformed feet. And she was accused of being a witch and having oh. magicked her daughter into a pony for the, do- the devil to ride. So the poor woman was stripped naked, rolled in a barrel of pitch and drowned in Dornach. And so that's... No, it was the 1720s. But the, the witch trials were not unique to Scotland. Mm-hmm. It was a feature of life throughout Northern Europe because people believed out of ignorance that the devil was active and there was a constant struggle between Jesus and the devil for supremacy. And it's a time of superstition, a time of ignorance. So if somebody falls ill, somebody dies as a crop failure, you're looking for the devil to be at work. And Several hundred people were executed in in Scotland, including over 100 at the foot of the Castle Esplanade in Edinburgh, where we've got the witch as well. And often these poor people were tortured and would just confess to anything. It was a Scottish king who bears a lot of responsibility for this. James VI, who was born in Edinburgh Castle, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, 
And at this point, the Reformation has taken place, and it preaches that the devil is all around. And he's engaged to a princess in Denmark, and he's very keen to meet his new bride. So he sails across the North Sea to Denmark. And on the way back, the ship is almost sunk in a storm, and he convinces himself there's a coven of witches outside Edinburgh in East Lothian who've plotted his death. And about 40 of these poor people were rounded up, tortured, and the king actually oversaw some of the torture. And of course, they would confess to anything and they're put to death. He actually wrote a book about it called Demonology, professing himself to be an expert in identifying witchcraft. Thankfully, all that was finished long before the move to the new town. So that was a dark chapter that people were very happy to put behind them. Oh, my goodness. Sounds like religious zealotry, ignorance, and perhaps something in the water, because it's it's <laughs> <laughs> sounds like madness. The, the best witch story in Edinburgh uh, is a true story. And this um, is about a man called Major Thomas Weir, who was born in Edinburgh in 1600. Uh, He fought for Parliament in the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, and he retires to Edinburgh uh, and takes up residence just off the Royal Mile in a house on what was called the West Bow, a steep street that led into Edinburgh. And he was very devout. He had religious services in his house every day. He had prayer meetings and he lived with his sister who had the old Scottish name of Grizzle. So Thomas and Grizzle Weir lived there and he was regarded as a very saintly man. He was called Saint Thomas. And he gathered round him a group of 12 young who prayed with him and were called the Bowhead Saints. But in 1670, he's 70 years old. He's an old man. He takes ill. He thinks he's dying. So he sends for the provost, Patrick Ramsey, and the provost comes to the house expecting to say prayers with Thomas. But Thomas is raving. He sold his soul to the devil. He's committed incest with his sister. All these young girls are his mistresses. He's a wicked man. And he's literally strapped to his sickbed, carted down to the court, tried and sentenced to death as a warlock, a male witch. And people are terrified of his powers. So instead of executing him in the heart of Edinburgh in the grass market, as was normal, he was taken outside Edinburgh, halfway down towards Leith. Uh, He was garroted and burnt at the stake. And his stick that he used to walk with was flung in the flames. And according to eyewitnesses, it screamed. Then his poor sister was arrested. She was tortured and just confirmed everything her brother had said. And she was hanged as a witch. And thereafter, the house was considered to be haunted. People couldn't stay in it. And the house clattered by at night. This was the devil coming looking for Thomas. So the age of superstition was shocking, absolutely shocking. Wow. Horrible things happened. So by the time the new town kicks off, this is Edinburgh's golden age. It's a time of intellectual inquiry, of empiricism. And we've got some of the great giants like David Hume and Adam Smith being and working in Edinburgh at that time. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer, Carrie, but no, we'd, we'd finish with witchcraft before the new town kicked in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And about when was that from the age of superstition approximately to the, the golden age, as you mentioned? People have been executed as witches all through the Middle Ages, if suspected. And often these were ladies who practiced herbalism. Um, you know, that was the, the main style of medicine. Healers. Again, a healer, exactly. But if there was a, you know unexplained death or whatever, you're looking for something wicked to have happened. Mm-hmm. But one of the worst examples predated the Reformation, and this involved King James V, the King of Scots, the father of Mary, Queen of Scots. He was notorious 
for having mistresses and illegitimate children. Uh, and he made approaches to a lady called Lady Douglas, and she refused his advances. Mm, uh-oh. And so she was uh, accused of being a witch. And her husband and son were arrested, and they were put in Edinburgh Castle, and they had to witness Lady Douglas being executed, supposedly as a witch. Uh, and it was a terrible thing to do. This sounds somewhat familiar. Um, there's nothing new under the sun, because I I, I, I interviewed a, a New Orleans paranormal investigator and ghost hunter. And he told me the story because I don't know if you've heard of what do you think of just just out of curiosity, just let me jump around here a little bit because I'm seeing a sim- similarity in human human behavior. Well, I was going to say one thing before you jump around. Yeah, please. Just think of the crucible, that fantastic play by Arthur Miller, which is yes. contemporary with what was happening in the UK, particularly in England in the 1700s. There we go. That we gods elect are under constant threat from the devil. So these poor women in Salem being tortured, absolutely horrible. So it's not been discarded by any means. I think without getting into the weeds, I won't get into the weeds about that story. But the theme is a common denominator is man is jilted and he scapegoats woman in some way. Um, an entire religion was smeared. It, it could also be seen um, very contemporary uh, as men being very uncomfortable with women who've got a skill, perhaps. Yes. Uh, some being able to do something, then you're scared by them uh, and you've got, you've got to suppress them. Mm, yes. They have to be witches. Yes. So fascinating. Okay. So you mentioned earlier about how everyone was coming to Edinburgh because they had to, because that was the capital for many years. But can we go back a little bit before it was the capital and what happened where it was before. And I just want to talk a little bit about the Viking age and um, that period. Okay. Right. Well, the nation of Scotland didn't exist. The Romans never conquered Scotland. They conquered England. They made three military incursions into Scotland, but never conquered Scotland. And at that time, Scotland was a mixture of people. You had the original Celtic settlers uh, in the east and north of Scotland, known as the Picts. Now, we know very little about the Picts, apart from their buildings that have survived and their beautiful carved stones, because they had no written language. It was entirely an oral tradition. So people tended to think that they were ignorant people. They were. They were highly intelligent people. Um, So they're living in the north and the east of Scotland. In the southwest of Scotland, you had a Celtic people, another Celtic people, um, who spoke the language of Wales. They were Welsh Britons, so they spoke a different form of Celtic from the Picts, couldn't understand each other, but nevertheless, they're a Celtic people. And then from the late 400s, you've got incursions of people from Ireland, who are another Celtic people, who settle in the west of Scotland, the northwest of Scotland, and the islands of Scotland. So you've got these Celtic peoples all mixed together, uh, and there's often fighting for territory. But what unites them is the threat of the Vikings, Don't miss an opportunity for a guided tour with Eric Melvin. You can go to ericmelvin, M-E-L-V-I-N dot C-O dot U-K to book him for a walking tour or a speaking engagement if you're local. There's lots more to uncover, 